Please be seated. Excuse me, Sue. Uh, Sue gave me a menthol and I started chewing it. Man, I just had some Coke with it and it really doesn't go well. Actually, welcome to 2017. It's amazing how many of you are excited about it. Who's excited about a new year? Wow. I'm terrified, so thanks, at least no. Actually, when, um, when a new year happens, lately, probably the last six or seven years, I've been wondering every year, I, I think this is the year our Savior is going to burst out of the sky and take us home. Wouldn't that be incredible? That'd be great. In fact, if you look at the world, it just seems like the biblical signs are everywhere. According to Matthew 24 and Luke 21, it says we're going to see wars and rumors of wars. Check. See that? It says we're going to see famines. See famines all over the place. Earthquakes in various places. In fact, have you guys been noticing California's been having an awful lot of them? And geologists say that slide of California might go in this year. It could be an exciting year. So check. And then um, it says... It says basically chaos in Jerusalem, and we see chaos in Jerusalem. But the truth is, you could also make the argument, those signs have been happening ever since Christ first appeared. It's true. There is one sign that's different, though. And I personally think it reveals the decay of our culture a little bit better than the others because this sign isn't out there, it's in here. According to Matthew 24, there is a sign that talks about what we are going to be like as the days start to get closer to Christ's return. Here, look, listen to what it said. This is Matthew 24, 10 through 12. Man, that mental sticks, Sue. It just sticks. I'm blaming you. If this is a bad sermon, it's Sue's fault. But listen to Matthew 24. And then many will fall away. And betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. False prophets is false doctrine. Doctrine that leads you from orthodox or correct doctrine. And they'll lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, and here's the scary part, the love of many will grow cold. The love of many will grow cold. What does this mean? Well, very simply, as the years go by, as the years progress, your heart and my heart has a terrible propensity to grow callous and hard towards God and others. Love grows cold. And I believe if we're not careful, our love, our hearts can be cold as ice. If we claim to be disciples of Christ, it can't define us. Cold cannot define us. According to John chapter 1, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. Light, by nature, is warm. Light, by nature, gives heat. And if you claim to be a Christian, a.k.a. a small Christ, you can't grow cold. You just can't. Actually, uh, cold, hard ice describes a person who actually is dead. 
on the inside. Proverbs 4.18 says, The righteous should be like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the fullness of day. Not the righteous is like being caught in a blizzard by a frozen lake in the dead of the night. And a lot of people that are Christians, when you meet them, they feel like that. They're the person you meet in the foyer. They don't even want to talk to you. I haven't had a person over in years. They haven't cried with somebody because just leave me alone. They're cold. So this month, our January series is going to explore this topic. Why do people grow cold and how do we thaw out? So this is the theme this year based on the Matthew 24, 12 passage. As times get closer, we cannot grow colder. I have to be honest with you, I find, truthfully, my heart is colder than it used to be. Especially, I would say, the first five years of knowing Christ, I was honestly a different person. For whatever reason, my compassion quotient, my desire to learn from the Word about others, and even my sensitivity towards sin is not what it used to be. I feel like the old Paul Simon song, I am a rock. I built walls, a fortress steep and mighty that none may penetrate. And this scares me. And I believe this should scare all of us because most of you are Michiganders and you're used to the cold, both physically and emotionally, especially the Dutch. But I didn't say that. Anyhow, let's keep going. So week one, let's move right ahead. Week one, here's the topic. I believe one of the reasons, and I believe this is the primary reason people grow cold is because we distance ourselves from God. So week one, go to the next slide. Coldness occurs as you grow distant from the light, from the heat. To do that, look at Jeremiah 10. I want to read the first 15 verses, and then we're going to work through it. This is an incredibly instructive chapter because it's a comparison. It's a comparison between the idols that we form and the God that we should serve. And one of our problems... One of the human issues, our human dilemmas, one man said, is we have a heart that's an idol factory. We produce an idol all the time, a different God to worship all the time. And we can't do that. And you'll see why. Starting in Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. That minto is really good, Sue. Thanks. Jeremiah 10, verse 1. Hear the word. That the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel, or you could put in there, O people of God. Thus says the Lord, learn not the ways of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried. They cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. But there is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. 
Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? This is the key question. Who would not fear you? For this is your due. For whom among all the wise ones of the nations and all their kingdoms there is none like you? They, however, are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen into the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are worked with skilled men. But the Lord, he's the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of water in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. It's pretty a nice compliment. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there's no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. So, this is what we're going to look at. Actually, leading up to chapter 10, Isaiah, he's called the weeping prophet because he's broken. He looks at his people, and he says in chapter 2, they've committed two sins. And we need to be appalled, he says. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at these two sins. This is verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out a cistern for themselves. A cistern that can't hold water. And so the question is, what does he mean by this? It's really simple. God's people already have God. The living water. John 4 says this living water, if you're a Christian, bubbles up constantly inside of you. However, we kind of want to live life our way. We don't want to listen to him, so we create idols of our own. And he calls them cisterns or holding tanks of water of our own. Not this bubbling water, but a container. But the problem with our container, it's broken and water just filters through. Meaning... These gods we make have no life. And he says, be appalled at this. And chapter 10 tells us why it's so appalling. I'm going to go through the nuts and bolts of idolatry, or I like to call it the process of stupidity. Here it is, the nuts and bolts of idolatry. Jeremiah begins this chapter in verse 1 and 2 by saying, don't learn the ways of the nations. Their customs... The cultural, what I would say, trappings, they're vain. In other words, Jeremiah is saying, be careful. You have a tendency to conform to the mindless lives that the rest of society daily engages in. We are like hamsters running on cultural wheels of our own making, and we don't even ask why. We just do it. Everybody else does it, so we need to do it. In Jeremiah's day, what they did is they worshipped, it says here, the heavens. They went to astrologers. They went to mystics. 
horoscopes. And if there were evil tidings, they had to create a God to give them security. Sounds sort of silly. Jeremiah calls it the customs of the people. But it's, it's not as far away from what we do. While they look at the heavens, we look at the headlines. And if the news outlets or the social media outlets we go to are saying we're in trouble, we get all scared to death. We tremble. The media experts on the TV and Internet, they're prognosticating doom, so go hide. We have abandoned trust in God for the words and opinions of fallible men. The word custom here means unquestioned patterns of behavior, and we accept traditions that society at large engages in. It's our natural tendency. Sometimes when we adopt customs or these patterns of behavior, they're okay. They're strange, but they're okay. Like, let's take the 1980s, the mullet. Why would anybody wear a mullet? Ken said, well, I didn't wear a mullet. Ken's always been mature. That's the problem. Why did a lot of church people in the 80s wear mullets? Because we do what society does. Some of us this past year, 2016, played Pokemon Go for two months. And then where'd it go? It's kind of irritating after a while. It's just a trend. It doesn't matter. It's a custom that we just jump on the hamster wheel. But sometimes the customs we adopt slander God, offend him, fail to worship him as he is. This is called idolatry. Idolatry infuriates God for two reasons. Not only did he say in the very first commandment, thou shalt not make any other idols, actually commandment number two, because I'm jealous. I want you for me. I don't want you running after another lover. But the second reason why idols are so bad is they make us into living idiots. I'll show you. Step one of an idol. We find it in verse 3 and 4. Step one says, the customs of the people are vanity. Why? Because they go into a forest, and they cut down a tree with an axe, and they take wood, and they give it to a craftsman, and he makes an idol. And then he puts some silver on it and some gold. So the first thing you can say is, step one, you have to choose raw material that God himself already provided. That's silly. Who gave us the raw material? Who gave us wood, stone, gold, silver? Who gave us our minds? Who gave us ideas? All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we begin, in, we begin with raw material. So we start with an idol. We've got a rock. It's a big rock. But didn't God have to make this rock first? So I take this rock to make in a God that I worship, but it has to first be made by the real God? Isn't that silly? That's the point. Idols are made of secondary material, the created material. Created material is always dependent on a creator. So wood, stone, silver, words, ideas, philosophies, thoughts, they first are dependent on God because they aren't self-existent in themselves. We are not self-existent. Everyone and everything is dependent on God to exist. 
So immediately, this foundation of idolatry is built on stupidity. Step two, in order to worship an idol, the idol maker has to dream up the idol he wants to worship. So the idol maker becomes God of the God he's going to worship. Listen to verse 8 and 9. He says, the people are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the works of the craftsmen and the hands of the goldsmiths. So they're the works of the craftsmen. So the idol is the creation of the craftsman who's created by God himself. It's crazy. Actually, Psalm 115 says they are the work of human hands. So you could say this. Before an idol is made, a man has to think up what he wants to make. So if we take that rock, what do we want to make that rock to be? Joni, I found an idol in your husband's house. He crafted an idol got from your daughter. Here it is. Dan Spolstra, our trumpet player, made this idol. He crafted it himself. It's of his own image. So in order to make this idol, a mind, a human mind had to conceive of the idol he wanted to make. Did you see it over there? It's profound. It's terrifying. What's that? It's a self-portrait of Dan. It is. And what you're going to see, that's exactly where we're headed in a second. Step three, well, so what you can say, the idol maker for all intents and purposes becomes a god over the god. He's the creator over the one who will soon call the creator while ignoring the true creator. Layers of stupidity. Number three, when you worship what you make, Jeremiah in verse three, look at verse three. He says these customs, specifically idol-making, they are vain. Vanity means they are empty. There's no substance. They're silly, and they're downright embarrassing. So if I was to pray to this, and I would get on my knees and say, Mr. Dan Spolstra's image, I want a million dollars. You would say, Chris, you're an idiot. Exactly. And it's okay to call me an idiot because that, he says it in there. When I'm worshiping somebody that's not God. That's the only time it's appropriate. It's the only time. So let's think through this. Idolatry is nothing more than playing make-believe with dolls. You could say, well, that's a smaller idol. I've seen some real big idols. You know, some as tall as this building. When God looks at that idol, is it big to him? Like you could say, well, this is a dinky idol. What idol is big to God? They're all silly, stupid little dolls playing make-believe. The person who worships is worshiping something he invented. It is a fraud, a lie. It doesn't exist. And so what he's going to do here in Jeremiah then is going to give you the characteristics of an idol. So every idol is, in verse 5, the first thing it says, listen, the idols like scarecrow and cucumber field, they can't speak, so the idols mute. You'll never hear a word from them. So if I take Dan's idol and I listen, I'm waiting. Say something. I'm giving up on you, you could say to it. See, I'm up with the new song. Do you guys know that song? 
It's a great song. It's the stupidest song ever. Anyhow, let's keep going. I just show you how relevant I am. Anyhow, verse 4 and 5. Derek, do you know that song? See, because he's a youth pastor. He's with it. Verse 4 and 5. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fashion it with hammer and nails. So it cannot move. So it's lame. Verse 5 says they have to be carried. So the God I worship, I have to kind of put in the room to be able to worship. I have to carry it in order for it to go anywhere. It's crazy. Verse 5 says it's harmless. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. They will perish. Verse 11. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish. In verse 14, they're cold and dead. Every man is stupid without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. His images are false. There's no breath in them. There's no life. They, they assume room temperature all the time. Like I don't, there's no breath. It's cold. And you know what Psalm says? What you worship, you become like. It's funny, when I was uh, going to seminary in Chicago, I was part of this group. It was a learning group that would go and visit different religions around the city. And we went to visit a Hindu, basically, temple in the middle of Chicago with a Sikh who led us around. And if you go, ever go to a Hindu temple, they have that elephant with eight or nine arms. And they've got Shiva, this naked woman with vampire teeth. Krishna, the god of war. And they're on these, like, pedestals. And while the Sikh was instructing us on Hindu religion, worshipers were coming in with bowls of honey and milk and some roast beef and flowers they would put underneath the, and on the necks of the statues. And while the Sikh was talking to us, it was hot. It was right around October. And there were flies buzzing all around and landing on the eyes of these idols and sitting on their shoulders and the idols didn't do a thing. They're stupid. So, it's sad. It's humiliating when humans worship their creation. Well, so the question then is, well, we wouldn't do that. All right, what idols do we worship? That's the question. What are our present-day idols? What are we worshiping instead of God? It's tough to answer because we often don't use rock and we often don't use wood. However, we, our, our raw materials are ideas and belief systems, so they're hard to see. This week I was listening to a very influential writer. He passed away a couple years ago. His name is David Foster Wallace. He's a novelist. He's kind of a cool what I'd call postmodern novelist. He's brilliant, but he's kind of a tortured writer. And he gave a graduation speak, speech, and he wanted to start off with this little story, a little anecdote to kind of help you understand what he's talking about. And it was fascinating. Here was the story. It said, an older fish is in the water, and he swims by two young fish, nodding. And as he swims by, he says, morning, boys, how's the water? Well, the small fish look quizzical. They swam past him. The smaller one says to his friend, tell me, what is water? So the, 
David Wallace, Foster Wallace, not David Wallace, but David Foster Wallace, he said, here's the point. The most obvious, important realities are the hardest for us to see and to talk about. So a fish is always in the water, so it never notices the water. So he says, what's our water? And mind you, this guy's an atheist. Here's what he says our water is. Listen to this. It's fascinating. He says, the water we are swimming in is, every one of us believes that I am the absolute center of the universe. I see myself as the most important person in existence. He calls this natural, basic self-centeredness. And he says, it's hardwired into me and into you. It's our default setting. We are always at the center of everything we ever experience, and that's how we see the world, with us right in the middle. Boom. So in a sense, what is the idol we make? The idol we make is us. We do it in so many ways. We want attention, so we post unceasingly online with selfies, unrestrained venting, seeking recognition, even fame. What's interesting is when that pipe burst and all the water is on the floor, for the first time I used Facebook Live, I had over 700 hits. It's amazing. I was somebody for two minutes. So stupid. So stupid. It really is. Who cares? A lot of people hit like because they say, if I don't hit like, the pastor will be mad at me, so I better hit like. Nobody cares. But we think they do. Second way you can tell we worship self is we want pleasure, limitless fun, 24 hours of seven days a week to make me happy. The way you can tell something's good these days isn't by have you learned something this weekend or was it mind expanding? No, but it was fun. I had fun. Fun is the determinant if something matters because we are pleasure-hungry, because we are the center of our world. That's a sign we're idling, making idols of ourselves. Another way is we want to be independently wealthy. We want money so we don't need anybody. If I'm independently wealthy, I can do it myself. And in the fourth way is we just want to be left alone. We are a rock, an island, a fortress. All of these add up to an idol of self. We become the gods wanting God himself to worship our image, to serve us on our terms, and to never disappoint us. Why do you think health and wealth gospel is so addictive? Because health and wealth says, if I say the right words, God will serve me the way I want to be served. So, in a lot of Christianity, it's actually self-idolatry. It's weird. If we pray and God doesn't meet me the way I want him to pray, we get mad at God. If we suffer, we get mad at God. If things don't make sense, we get mad at God. All that saying is God owes us an explanation. Why? Because I'm a God. And the problem with worshiping self, as I said earlier, what you worship, you become. And worshiping self shrinks your soul. It's sort of like an octopus when it's hungry, it starts eating its arms. That's kind of self-defeating. It's not good. 
I'll just give you one more example of the worship of self. There's a new movement. I'm, I like to do reading on it. It's the new rise of atheism in America. Atheism just believes there's no God. Some of the books I read say, well, there's many reasons for its spread of atheism. One is people have rejected religion because it's so entwined with politics. They just don't want to have anything to do with it. That makes sense. Another reason is they say because of the Internet use and globalization, we meet people from all over the world and we adopt their ideas. So we'll talk to Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and, hey, they're nice people so their ideas can't be bad. Some other people just hate authority altogether. So when God says don't do this, so if you're a seven-year-old girl and you want to be a boy, go ahead, be a boy. And God says don't do that. We don't like God telling us what to do, so we go back to we'd rather reject God and have things our way than do what he says. But this book says, one book says, one of the biggest problems and one of the biggest reasons atheism spread it's called existential security thesis, EST, which means the wealthier I am, the less I need God. It's very simple. The writer says, the more secure I feel through my own abilities, resources, and social networks, the less I need God to rescue me, deliver me. That's what Savior means. Atheism thrives the most in homes where anxiety over food, clothes, and shelter are relatively non-existent, like they are in America. We rarely go without food. That is why most atheists come from wealthy, upper-class homes. Why do you need God when you can get what God can get you? All you got to do is go to the bank, take out enough money, and your needs will be answered. So in a sense, you could say it like this. Money becomes the raw material to erect an idol to the self-sufficient man. But the self-sufficient man is too busy being self-sufficient to have time for other people meeting their needs. The self-sufficient man is proud. The self-sufficient man wonders why you aren't self-sufficient. So there's no compassion for the self-sufficient man. The self-sufficient man is my question for you is is your heart growing cold towards others because you think so highly of yourself Paul would ask it like this what do you have that you did not first receive 1 Corinthians 4 7 why do you boast as if you did not receive it so what Jeremiah does is he shows you the idiocy of idolatry. Hopefully that makes sense. Then what he's going to do is he's going to do a comparison analysis. He's going to compare your idol with the real God. And it's, diff it's starkly different. Jeremiah's aim in this section is to bring people back to seeing the majesty, the vaunted splendor of God. Not only is it stupid to worship an idol, but it's dangerous not to worship him. Here's the reasons why. Because God is, in verse 10, true. What true means is he is reality. He is the source of reality. So behind this curtain, we, this visible curtain we call reality lies God. As much as we want to get rid of him, he is true. You can't. 
Verse 10 also says, he's alive. He's the living God. Meaning, even as I'm talking, this is always bizarre to me, even as I sit in the auditorium, sometimes I like to think about, Jesus can hear everything I'm saying right now. I wonder what he thinks of me. Psalm 11 is terrifying. It says, right now, God is sitting on his throne, testing your heart. He's alive. Verse 10 says he's everlasting. Everlasting, another word we use for this is eternal. It means basically God is immutable. He can't be changed. He was already perfect. He doesn't need to be improved. A lot of times we think we can improve upon the person and character of God, but he's already in himself perfect. He will not change nor can you change him, and he won't change because our culture changes, even if our culture says it's progressive. The reason why God is against homosexuality is not because he's stuck in his ways or he's ancient. The reason why he doesn't change towards homosexuality is it's not the best thing for us. He's designed us a perfect way. And when we mess with that, we destroy and distort it to our, really, decay. Verse 10 also says he's all-powerful. At his wrath, the earth quakes. The nations cannot endure his indignation. And then verse 12 says he made everything. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, by his understanding, stretched out of the heavens. So in other words, he is why you are. He is why you are. Why you are sitting there, why you are alive, why you can work, why you can think. It's because of him. If you meditate on these realities, just stop and meditate on them, and hopefully that's, to me, this is the best way to start 2017. It should bring you to the conclusion Jeremiah found in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 is the key. It's the heartbeat of this chapter. And it's a simple question. Who would not fear you. Do you know what the assumed answer is? A stupid person. He says it all through there. That word stupidity, vanity, foolish. Who would not fear you? An idiot. Because of all of these reasons. That's the point. And I know you're going to say, I Pastor Chris, I tell my kids never to use that word. Don't use that word, stupid and idiot. There's one context you can. When you, when you get rid of and exchange the living God for this. I hope Dan's not offended, but this really is not something I want to worship, Johnny. It's silly. Fear is essential if we're ever going to thaw out our heart. The Hebrew word for fear means to make afraid, to terrify, to know that I'm getting awfully close to playing with fire. Fear makes your heart beat. It, it kind of it pumps up your senses. You awaken. And the fear of God is intended to wake you up out of your coldness. It is. I'll, I'll never forget this time. My brother and I were driving on, on Highway 35 in Ohio. We're going to visit our cousins. It's just my brother and I and my mom's light blue Camaro. 
1984. It's a fast car. It's fun to drive. We're driving down Highway 35 in Ohio. It's country roads. If you go to the eastern part of Ohio, it's really hilly. There's a lot of hills. And we just happen to be behind a big truck going 45 miles an hour. That is a sin to me, going 45. So as a kid, I'm, you know, as a, I'm probably 19 or something, I'm like, this is ridiculous. But while we're driving in that car, you know, on the peripheral vision, you see those cars whooshing by, and the sun is coming through the window, and you're getting kind of tired. It's a Sunday afternoon. The radio's on, but it's sort of muted, and you and your brother are yawning. And I'm just tired of driving 45, so I start to pass this truck. Even though it's a two-lane, I mean a double yellow, I'm in a Camaro. I can pass this. The problem is the hill crested a lot earlier than I thought. As I'm passing the truck halfway there, the hill starts going down. I'm going up, and all of a sudden it goes down. As I'm going down the hill, a truck is barreling up the other way. So I am halfway past the truck on this side, and a truck is coming. This, it's going to nail me. I gun the car, and I miss both trucks by about that much. I look at my brother. He looks at me. He goes, what are you doing? What are you doing? He woke up. It woke him up. That fear, it woke him up. I'm telling you, everything woke up. I know the exact song that was on, and I'm sure you You'd, you'll know this. Amy, what you... Remember that song, Jim? You remember that. He's, he's a, a 70s folk guy. That song, I will never forget that song. It reminds me of Highway 35. Then all, you know, you start sweating and you say to yourself, I will never, ever, ever cross a double yellow, ever, never, ever, ever, never, ever again. You change. Fear changes you. That's the intention of this verse, is to say, do you guys know who our God is? When he speaks, the earth quakes. And when you start fearing and realizing the God we serve, not only does it make idols disappear, but it changes you. Look at verses 23 and 24. Here's what happens when fear starts thawing out a cold heart. Two things. You know something. You start realizing reality. It says, I know, Lord, that a, the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. You start realizing that without God, I'm completely helpless. I know, Lord, I really don't know what I'm doing. I can't direct my steps. I need you every second of the day. Fear dispels natural basic self-centeredness. When you realize you're dealing with a being that holds your life in his hands, you tend to stop gazing at your navel. The greatest day in a person's life, the greatest day in a person's life is when you realize you are not all that you cracked yourself up to be. It's the greatest day of your life. Why? Because the people with the warmest hearts are the ones who have no need to promote themselves. Have you ever been in a room with somebody that doesn't need to one-up you in a conversation? It's like a breath of fresh air. They actually listen to you. The people with the warmest hearts are the ones who have no need to promote themselves. Second thing is verse 24, and this is amazing. 
when you finally see God and fear starts thawing out your heart, you are willing to let him speak into your life and correct you. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. He gets it. He gets two things. Number one, he knows that God has every right to speak into his life. He acknowledges God's role as king, and he asks him to treat him with justice. What does that mean? In the Jewish mind, if I, if I sinned according to the law of God, there is, there is provision. He will defer punishment. That means he will hold back punishment if I offer a sacrifice, a substitute in my place. That's God's justice. God will let me live if somebody else dies for me. That's grace. God gives you what you don't deserve. The second thing that he realizes is that God has every right to respond in anger. Look what he says. Correct me, Lord, not in your anger. Man, if you unleash your anger, I'm going to be reduced to nothing. He's asking for God to show mercy, grace to give him a sacrifice he doesn't, re doesn't deserve, and mercy to hold back the wrath that he does deserve. A king has a right to immediately judge, judge sin. Actually, Jonathan Edwards put it like this. We often, when God says he's king, we often kind of think about small infractions against the king. But what would the king do to you if you slept with the king's wife, the queen? That's kind of like what we've done against him with every sin. It's pretty sick. A king has a right to immediately judge sin. We know this is mercy. God has every right to be upset with me and you. He has every right not to give answers to the atheist's snarky doubts. He has every right to judge. He's king. So our plea for grace and mercy is what draws him near to me. And when light is drawn near to ice, it melts. It melts. So as we look at year 2017, in a sense, I'm surprised a lot of you are excited about it. A lot of you aren't. But my hope for all of us, honestly, is to stop worshiping the idol of self, to stop it, and to come closer to the light, to let it come closer. So we need to begin 2017 in the right place place where we find grace and we find mercy. A place we find a sacrifice for sin and God's anger satisfied. This is, this is, this is the communion table and this is God's heart expressed to you. It's warm, it's open, and it's incredible.